It wasn't until I got here to the United States of America in 2007 that I was able to discern the difference between good and bad coffee. I uh, grew up on something called uh, Recoffee, which is marginally better than Folgers. And uh, someone introduced us to Starbucks and I was like, whoa, a whole new world, a whole new world. And uh, it was amazing. I found it a little bit bitter though, you know, and I remember uh, first month or so ordering like, a, I don't know, a cappuccino or whatever with, um, with, I wanted honey to make it a little sweeter. So I asked for a sachet of honey. Um, and the guy just like, that's a, that's a dance move here, Sasha. I was like, oh, a packet of honey. I'll have a packet of honey. Anyway, Starbucks was a whole new world. But then someone was like, no, no, but there's, there's better. There's better. Let me introduce you to like little vintage, little boutique coffee shops. And then I learned to discern the difference between that and, and that and then became a, a coffee snob. And uh, my, my daughter works at a at a great coffee shop called Golden State. And if you go into their back room, they've got a roastery. They've got this big wheel of the different flavors and aromas and bouquets that come on. I don't know if you know, but coffee has more different bouquets than wine. And so you've got like berries and you've got like leather and dark chocolate, even like burnt rubber. Yeah. And the top baristas are able to discern the difference in the subtle flavors. I took up uh, paddle boarding when I was about 40. I found myself a little too old and bent over to surf. And um, my favorite beach is Dahini. And uh, go there most Fridays. I think I'm a pretty decent paddle boarder. But one thing that I had to learn was to discern the different currents in the Pacific Ocean. And the Pacific Ocean is known for being like pacified, it's, 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 it's peaceful, it's, it's beautiful, but there are these currents that will take you. And I, I learned actually to line myself up with this pier, rocky pier, with this like anvil on the end that they find myself taken by a current 100 yards down. But if I line myself up with the anvil, with the hammer, I could discern where the currents were, were going. Discernment, discernment. Discernment is so needed in our age, isn't it? We live in such confusing, complex times, all sorts of ways. And the Word of God is like that anvil that we line up with, the eternal thing, the thing that stands outside of time, outside of culture, outside of the oceans of our current, and we line ourselves up with it. And I'm gonna take us back into Luke 20. We've been three weeks in the Psalms talking about a pilgrim people. Now we're back in Luke. We're finishing up the Gospel of Luke. It's been about a year there from time to time. It's been great. And we find ourselves Luke 20 where Jesus is having to show great discernment. And we're gonna learn discernment from Him. And I don't know about you, but discernment is something I pray for more than almost anything in our confusing, extremist, polarized times. There's so much knowledge, so little wisdom. Amen? So many opinions, so little truth. A feast of opinions and a famine of truth. What is it to be discerning? What do we learn from Jesus' life? Luke 20, 19 to 2039, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour 
For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So the parable that he told just before was he, he was talking about his authority and they were questioning his authority. And so he told a parable. He was discerning, like discerning not just to say, you rebels, you reject my authority. He tells a story. He's, he's discerning. He tells a story of a, of a vineyard and these tenants in the vineyard and the tenants wanna take it over from the owner. So the owner sends his son to try and sort it out and they murder his son. These rebels. And the scribes, the Pharisees, they discern, <laughs> they perceive that Jesus is telling the parable about them. So they watch Him and send spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch Him in something, something He said so as to deliver Him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, that was a coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any question. This is the word of the Lord, amen. It's quite a technical passage in some ways, and I'm gonna have to teach a little bit, ask you to work with me a little bit, but I believe as we sit with it, it's gonna, the truth is gonna bring us great life. Discernment is the theme of this passage. And, and Jesus has to discern because these Pharisees are flattering him. They buttering him up. Oh, teacher, you teach the way of truth without partiality. You're so awesome. They're blowing smoke. And he's got to see through it. He realizes they, there's butter on their tongues, but murder in their hearts. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two very different parties. They were both Jewish, but, but the Pharisees were political conservatives who were wanting the full autonomy of Israel from Rome, this corrupt colonial power. So they were political conservatives who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted political revolution. 
And the Sadducees, on the other hand, were liberals. And they were generally well-to-do. They were enjoying life under the Roman colonial power. They didn't wanna overthrow. Life was good, but they were theologically deconstructing. So the Pharisees wanted political revolution. The, the Sadducees wanted theological deconstruction. Does it ring any bells in terms of our culture today? Any bells? So often we look at Jesus' life and it's like, wow, well, yeah, that was easy for you. Things were just simple, you know, Galilean peasants, you know, our day, I mean, it's so complex, so many thoughts, so many currents. I wanna say Jesus faced the similar kind of cultural, political, religious, academic currents that we, not exactly the same, but very similar. And He gives us a vision of discernment in the midst of confusion. It was said in Isaiah chapter 11, prophesying about Jesus, the Messiah, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would rest upon Him. The, the spirit of counsel and might. He would not judge what He sees with His eyes or judge what He hears with His ears, but He would walk in the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. Such confusion, so many strong currents. Let me say this, discernment is not the same as discrimination. Discernment is not the same as being judgmental. Discernment is not the same as prejudice. It is perception in the absence of judgment with a view to gaining spiritual guidance and understanding. If we look at Jesus' life of discernment, He was not prejudiced. He was not judgmental. In fact, if you look, the people that Jesus gravitated showed great were the wanton woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. I mean, Jesus walked towards them when everyone else was like, ugh. He walked towards them and showed them grace. Even people on His team, think of Peter, where, where Jesus discerns, Peter, you're going, you're going to betray me. You can not correctly, but his heart was still gracious to him to redeem him, where after the denial, he actually reinstates him. Discer discernment, hear me about this, is not freeze framing a person and saying, this is you and this is gonna be you forever. If we are Christians, when we discern, it will always be loving and always through the lens of God's redemptive grace. If Jesus could both discern and redeem Peter, well then the gospel works in our lives to discern what's going on, but also trust God to redeem, amen? amen? And so what we first see here in this passage is that the enemy would love to confuse us, but Jesus offers us the gift of discernment. Now, when I say the enemy, I wanna be careful here because Satan is not mentioned in this passage, although, Two chapters later, if you flip over the page, Judas Iscariot is about to betray Jesus for a bag of silver and it says, Satan entered into his heart and he betrayed. And you ask, well, who was betraying, Satan or Judas? Tell me, who was it? Trick question, who was it? Hello? It's not a rhetorical question, genuinely. I mean, I mean both, you know. Satan, who's, who was crafty, who's called the deceiver, who's, who's called both the father of lies and an angel of light. I mean, Satan is not like an MMA fighter. He's not like Conor McGregor. He's ah, I'm just gonna kill you and your children. Satan's like the, 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 
the guy who phones you and says, hmm, I've seen, we're from the social security department and I've seen there's something wrong with your social security. You're gonna have to hand me your account. Our friends just lost $35,000 in December because of that. I mean, Satan is the hypnotist who will hypnotize and then steal your wallet. He's subtle and he works through people. And so when I say the enemy, I'm talking about Satan working through worldly wisdom. That is not godly wisdom. And both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, although they were religious, they thought in worldly ways and Satan was at work and Jesus needed to discern and so do we. And what we see is that the word perceive or perception is used twice in this passage. First in verse 19, where it says, the scribes, the Pharisees, they perceived that Jesus was telling this parable about them. Were they right? Yeah, they were right. They perceived rightly, but then they, they, they flatter Him. They butter Him up. And then they look for a way to get Him arrested. And the word perceive in verse 19 is a fascinating word. It's ignoson, where we get our word knowledge. And it's, it means to comprehend for the first time instinctively. In other words, their kind of perception was not discernment. It was jumping to conclusions. If they really discerned the heart of Jesus in this parable, they would have said, oh, we repent. We submit to you. You are the king. They didn't discern. They had a hot take on Jesus. They had a hot take. And in our world of hot takes and jumping to conclusions and judging people on their motives, how desperately do we need discernment? Especially amongst the people of God. The people of God are supposed to be the most discerning people, slow to anger, abounding in love, slow to speak, quick to listen, knowing truth, not seeing from appearances. Part of discernment is that we have to learn to second guess our first impressions. How many times in your life have you got a first impression of someone? And because of their looks or the way they speak or their tattoos or their piercings or their, their culture, their age, whatever, you just write them off. And then if you keep an open heart, you go, oh my gosh, how wrong was I? Remember early, early days, we were leading our first church and this punk rocker joined, man. And he was a worship leader, but he had an attitude, man. And I was just like, he had piercings and spiked hair and whatever. I was like, this guy's a punk. <laughs> I remember having, having coffee with him and, I'd started to see that there was real leadership on the guy, but he was a punk. His wife and Ronelle and I, and, and, and they just say, I know you've just taken over this church, but you know, we've got a dream to do like a coffee shop tour of the world. And we're just gonna go and busk and play. And so sorry. And there was something in me, I found myself saying, hey buddy, you've got a leadership gift on you and I actually need it. So will you come and build with us? And I guarantee you, you will travel more than your heart's content. And as I'm talking, I'm like, what am I saying? I'm making a promise to this guy. Anyway, the guy, the guy stays with his wife and he takes over the worship. He becomes an elder. He starts to travel. Then he's traveling more than I am. And he's still a punk with piercings, and, but, but, but he's, a, he's an elder punk. <laughs> and then comes, comes time when he's leading his own congregation. Then comes time when there's a church in Canada that needs a leader. And I phone and I say, Vic, I, 
You remember that traveling thing? I think it's now. They now live in Toronto, leading a church. Amazing how sometimes God just gives you discernment. And sometimes the discernment is really good. And sometimes it's just like a, hmm, I can't put my finger over. There's something about this person. Mm, it's just like a, hmm. You, you know, spiritual people call it, I've got a check in my spirit about you. When, when people say that to me, I was like, can you sign it and give the check to me? I'm, like, no, I'm joking. <laughs> we can't overdo that. But sometimes, you know, you just have a spiritual apprehension. And you can't be like the Pharisees where you write the person off and try and get them arrested. But you go, mm, there's, something, there's something off, there's something off. And Jesus' discernment, Jesus' perception, it was a different word. It's fascinating. It's the word catanosis, where verse 23, it says, he perceived their craftiness. They were flattering him. They were buttering him up. Oh, you teach the Word of God true without partiality. Isn't that a beautiful compliment? even though they hated him, to say, Jesus, you are impartial. Discernment is impartial, unbiased. Don't we need that? Jesus is able to see a person at face value. You and I, Jesus knows everything about us, the best and the worst, and can still love us. He's impartial. He's not prejudiced. He's not judgy. What a Savior. And it says, but he perceived that they were crafty. The NIV says he saw through their duplicity. And you can look at Jesus and say, well, obviously, obviously he knew he was God. He was omniscient. But if we understand what Philippians 2 says about Jesus is that being fully God, he laid aside his majesty he did not grasp at godliness. In other words, Jesus gave up some of his godly advantage, taking on the nature of a human servant, being a model of what it is to follow God here on this earth. And he lived in humble reliance on the Spirit so that we look at him and say, oh, well, yeah, you're discerning. I can't do that because you're God. You say, yes, I'm fully God, but I was fully man. And I was able to walk in, the, in reliance on the Holy Spirit. And so can you. And that's why Romans 12, amidst all these beautiful spiritual gifts, tongues, interpretation, prophecy, laying on of hands, miracles, it says, and discernment between spirits. In other words, discernment is something we can ask the Holy Spirit to grow us in. And we must, we must think of King Solomon crying out, God, I'm unable to lead these people. Give me wisdom and discernment, O God. And he led with such discernment that the nations of the earth came to see not just his palace, but his wisdom and his discernment. Surely the people of God can be like that. Amen. Secondly, the, the enemy wants to divide us. So firstly, he wants to confuse us. God gives us discernment. Secondly, he wants to divide us. Politically, especially. But Jesus wants to unite us as citizens of God's kingdom. Boy, we need to live with such discernment in our day and age, irrespective of which way we lean politically. Because the spirit of this age has made politics a religion. And you see it on both sides of the aisle. It's not that we don't have convictions 
and people the body we support, it's that so often we've made politics a religion. And when you make politics a religion, when the guy or the girl gets in power that you voted for, you tend to idolize them. And when the guy or the girl gets in power that you didn't vote for, you tend to demonize them. And Jesus speaks to that. And He's speaking to the Pharisees. And remember the Pharisees hated Caesar. They wanted him overthrown. And granted, Tiberius Caesar was an immoral tyrant. And he would hand over to Nero Caesar who persecuted Christians. It was terrible, absolutely terrible. So these guys come to trap him and say, okay, shall we give our taxes to Caesar? Now what they're wanting to do, they, they sly, they crafty, man. They are saying, well, either... He's gonna say yes, and then all the Jewish people will hate him and crucify him, or otherwise no, and then Rome will crucify him. So Jesus is stuck on the horns of a dilemma and he's so discerning and he's so brilliant. And what does he do? I know you're waiting to ask that question. What does he do? Well, firstly, Let's remember, well, I mean, he takes a coin. And he says, whose who's inscription is on here? And of course, it's Caesar. Now, on many of the coins was not just an inscription of Caesar, but the words, Kaiser Kyrios, which means Caesar is Lord. In other words, Caesar didn't just want taxes, Caesar wanted ultimate allegiance. Caesar wanted worship. And so Jesus is coming with this coin and he's saying, who's on the coin? Well, Caesar. Okay, render or give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. In other words, Jesus was calling his followers to engage the political world with discernment, where he was saying, firstly, you are to submit to Caesar. What? Caesar is a tyrant. He's robbing us. I mean, the tax collectors were corrupt. What? And he was like, no, actually obey Caesar. Jesus was not an anarchist. And we must remember that Jesus was a victim of Rome unjust crucifixion by Rome. And yet still he said, hey, pay your taxes to Caesar. In our day, it's like, well, and obey the speed limit. Do jury duty. Even when the laws of the land aren't your favorite, don't get into civil disobedience and then, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus said we could. No, 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 Jesus actually said, give to Caesar what is Caesar. You know, there's a little bit of anarchy in most of us. Certainly a little bit of anarchy in me. How about you? I mean, let's face it. We celebrated our freedom last week and I'm all, all about it. I'm a patriot. But in some ways, we're, we're quite rebellious in our freedom, aren't we? We like to stick it to the man. I was coming back from Mexico with my wife recently 
from a vacation and I was, I just so happened to be on a Zoom call with about 10 pastors. About 30 minutes before we got to the border, I knew there would be a queue at the border and I knew that American customs would be asking us stuff. And so I said to Renelle, you drive, I'll sit shotgun so that I, I won't be interrupted. And so I'm on this call, encouraging these pastors from all over the West Coast, encouraging one guy's crying in Canada because he can't meet and all that stuff. And we get to the border and I hear the border guy say to Renelle, have you got anything to declare? And she's like, well, and I'm like, no! <laughs> well, a little bit of granola we brought in from South Africa. I mean, not South Africa, United States. Uh, you know, a couple of eggs. He was like, well, pull over. I'm like, pull over for eggs? I'm on the line. I say to the guy, you're supposed to be arresting drug cartels, not people with eggs. So he's like, pull over, put away your phone. So I'm on the Zoom call. I said to the guys, guys, you carry on, I'll be back. You know, I put the phone in my pocket and I'm just having a fat argument with the guys because eggs. <laughs> and Kelly, who's one of the pastors, like, Al, switch off the phone. We can hear you, we can hear you, you know. <laughs> it was a disaster, man. And still, I don't know if I would declare eggs going back. Warren Wiersbe says this, it's unfortunate that some Christians have mistaken, there's a mistaken idea that the more obnoxious they are as citizens, the more they please God and witness for Christ. We mustn't violate our conscience, but we should seek to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. There is a moment for civil disobedience. There absolutely is. And we feel especially religious freedom ooh, tightening down. And there are moments, there was a moment in our last 16 months where we actually had a moment of civil disobedience where the government said, you're not gonna sing. And we said, yes, we are. But that beloved is not a first response. It's a last resort. We got to a place where we were saying, actually, yes, taxes belong to the government, but our hearts and souls do not. Our worship does not. And there is a moment when we actually need to say, no, this does not belong to the government. This belongs to God and you will not have it. But beloved, it needs to be last resort and not first response. Otherwise, what happens is the church is always crying wolf, crying wolf, crying wolf. What happens when they really do clamp down and they just say, you guys just whine all the time. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Be good citizens. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. How do I know, one, if I've got into kind of anarchy where I'm just wanting to overthrow the government or otherwise where I've got into idolization of those who are in power. Because let's face it, when politics is a religion, we tend to do one or the other. We either demonize or we idolize. How do I know? Well, one obvious way is when you sing the anthem, and I love singing the anthem, it irritates me when people don't take the cap off, I'm all about it. When you sing the anthem, do you sing it full-throated, crying, uh, and then when you come into worship to worship Jesus, you're like, hmm, it's not my favorite song. <laughs> if you do that, there's something wrong. It means there's an allegiance and a worship to your country that actually is higher than to your king. What Jesus is talking about is we need to be discerning to say, all of us are citizens that follow Jesus, are citizens of another kingdom. And our allegiance is to another king. And then our second allegiance 
is to our country. We need discernment to walk that through, amen? One of the other things that I think is so practically helpful is to develop a relationship with another Christian who's a different age, different culture, different political persuasion to you and develop that friendship and listen to them and speak to them. One of the things that so blesses me is the relationship between Matt Holmes and Daniel Chung, two of our elders. They're the same age, but they're different culture, different political persuasion, different even sociological outlook, different history. And I've watched them argue and talk and listen. Both of them are more rounded and more discerning because of their friendship. Do that, do that. Develop relationships with people who think differently to you. Thirdly, the enemy would love to deconstruct the foundations of our faith. Jesus wants us to build our faith on Him. Jesus wants us to build our faith on Him. We get to the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were very opposite to the Pharisees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, verse 27 says. And ready for a dad joke? That's why they were so sad, you see. Nailed it. Kids cringing, elders cringing. But, but the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And they didn't believe in angels or demons or the resurrection. And the Sadducees were different from the Pharisees. They were liberal, they were progressive, and they actually enjoyed life under a Roman government. They didn't wanna overthrow, they wanted to assimilate. They were happy, man. And they didn't believe in the power of God. They didn't believe in God's resurrection power. And they say to Jesus, they, they, they bring this like very patronizing, like arrogant, Look down your nose at Jesus and his resurrection, whatever. You believe in the resurrection? I mean, think about Jesus' patience and his grace. This is the guy who's been teaching for three years. The Son of Man is gonna be betrayed, crucified, and on the third day, rise again. This is the guy. This is a few days before Jesus' death and resurrection. He is gonna be raised from the dead. And they're like, oh, you believe in the resurrection. I mean, if I was Jesus, I would've just wanted like, just follow that, just now. No, 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 just, just nuke them. Just, just now. <laughs> and they tell this story that is so patronizing, man. Oh, this, it's, it's called Leveret marriage, where if there was a brother and the brother died, the other brother would marry the, the widow. And you know, seven brides for seven brothers, that movie, this is different. There's like seven bridegrooms for one bride and they can't give her a child. And so get married and die seven times. Well, whose wife is she gonna be in the resurrection? They're just teasing Jesus. They're progressives. They're deconstructing theology. And I wanna say that current in our culture is as strong as a hyper-conservative current. And we've got to discern both. Have you ever been in a conversation with a friend or colleague or, or family member where they're like, oh, you believe in, 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 in creation? You ignoramus. You know, are you Amish or something? You know, they just mock you. 
You, you actually believe that, that Jesus is one way? Oh my gosh, you closed-minded bigot. You actually believe in the gifts of the Spirit? Oh my gosh, oh, gifts of the Spirit. That's like, ah, that's stuff. Resurrection, ah, oh, golly. There's such a mocking in the liberal current. And they think that they can take major bricks or stones out of the foundations of the faith. But actually the whole house comes down. And Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus is the builder of the church and he is the chief cornerstone. And Paul says, you can't build on any foundation except the foundation of Christ. Christ who came to live, Christ who came to die, Christ who rose again, Christ who will come again. And actually Paul the Apostle said, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is in vain. You ought to be more pitied than anyone. You can't say, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus, Bible, I follow, but actually resurrection, no. And so what Jesus does is He just kind of teases them back. He teases them back. And what He says is that He calls them people of this age. Oh, the people of this age, they get married, they get caught up in all the stuff of this age. He says, but actually the sons of the resurrection, they are like the angels. There's an age coming for the sons of the resurrection where you won't get caught up in marriage. You're gonna get caught up in Jesus. And what he does, he starts to poke at their faith as an empty, depressing faith because all you've got is eat, drink and be merry in this life because there's nothing coming later. He's saying, you're just the sons of this age. Beloved, beware of the sons of this age that pull you away from what the Bible teaches about Jesus. They will empty your faith of joy and you'll be left with a shell. And you'll find you are just living for this life, not the life to come. But when we put our faith in Christ resurrected, what happens? is that we start to live again and we live for the life that is truly life. What does that look like? Well, if you think of Jesus as Luke's gospel describes in the resurrection, his resurrection body had some resemblance to before he was resurrected, but it was like his body in full bloom. He could eat, you could touch him, but he could walk through walls. It was life on steroids. Paul the Apostle describing resurrection life after we die. He says, we will wake and it will be like the seed that was planted becomes imperishable. The, the, there was a seed before, now the flower is in full bloom. If we believe in the resurrection, we believe in life in full bloom on the other side of the grave. What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, it means life with all its pleasures that we're trying to live here. Sexual pleasure, aesthetic pleasure, relational pleasure, pleasure, financial pleasure, all the things that we kind of, oh, I'm just, I, I got a YOLO, man, YOLO. I've got to live life to the full. Actually, what Jesus says is not YOLO. We all live twice. Maybe it's Walt. That's another dad joke. We all live twice. 
What Jesus is saying is that, honestly, this life will seem like downtown Disney compared to that life, the real park. The things that you thought brought you such pleasure will be like in that downtown Build-A-Bear shop compared to the real park. Seriously, that's what it will be. All the longings of our heart that we thought would be absolutely fulfilled here, we'll find there. It's not angels on, with harps on clouds. It's the new heavens and the new earth, the places that we, I've got to visit that place. How about visiting that place in the new creation where there's no pain, no fear of, 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 of flying, no, no mosquitoes, no nothing. It's just like the new heavens and the new earth. You don't have to YOLO when you believe in the resurrection. The sons of the resurrection are looking for the life that is truly life. You know what that means? It enables us to defer some gratification now. You know what? I won't get to do that, but I will in the resurrection. I won't get to Rome and eat cacio pepe pasta. I'd love it, but I will in the resurrection. And maybe you get to Rome, that's fine, but we don't have to YOLO it. You know what it also means? It means we can walk through great suffering with great hope. Because in the new creation, He will wipe every tear away. When we believe in the resurrection, unlike the Sadducees, we are prisoners of hope because Christ wins. And one day, everything sad will come untrue and every enemy will be under his feet and we will never die again. That's worth living for. We need discernment on how to live through suffering with great hope. I have an Engage book group. We meet on Wednesday mornings. A group of about 12 men going through gentle and lowly. We're going around talking about what we long for, being honest as men. And some guys were saying, I just long for my marriage to be stronger. Others, I long for my kids to come back to Christ. Others, I, I just long for a promotion. I, you know, all good, good stuff. We're just sharing. Gets to my friend Kip. He's right next to me. And Kip is an amazing artist brilliant mind and, and, and Kip has some severe physical disability Kip has a tracheotomy has to push the button to speak Kip is amazing gets to Kip what are you longing for Kip he says I'm longing for the new creation when my body will be whole and suddenly my little longing felt very, very of this age. We need people who found resurrection hope and suffering. They pass it on to us and we find ourselves longing not just for this life, but the life to come. That's the beauty of being amongst the people of God. Oh, resurrection hope is in you. You're a daughter of the resurrection, aren't you? You're a son of the resurrection. God, give us discernment. God, give us discernment. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you model great discernment in a very confusing age. 
we confess that we feel like the surfer pulled by the currents of this age. And we want today to line ourselves up with the anvil of your word that stands outside of this age, that is rooted in eternity, that gives us hope, that gives us courage. We wanna swim back to your word now. And so I pray that you would help us. Help us to confess when we've been carried away either by a political spirit, right or left, or otherwise by a spirit that wants to deconstruct your word. And Jesus, we say on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. And so before we go to communion and go back to worship, I just wanna ask you, if you're saying, man, I, I'm longing for discernment and I know the currents of this world have, have pulled me off course, but today I'm asking Jesus to help, to help me come back to the anvil of his word and find a solid place to stand. Why don't you quickly put up your hand? I'd like to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Spirit of God, we pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest upon these people. May they cry out to you for wisdom. May your word light their way. People, Lord, going through great hardship and suffering, may resurrection hope fill us. May our deepest identity be we are daughters and sons of the resurrection. Fill us with hope, fill us with courage. Lord, I pray as well, that you would give us discernment to be citizens of heaven and good citizens here of this great nation too. In Jesus' name. And everyone said,